Listener Production. Sophie Keisha has always been in a rush. At 20, she met a bloke and fell in love. By age 23, she'd given birth to her first child, and within another year or two, she'd grown a formidable social media following for her account, The Young Mummy. Then there was her, is Sophie's debut book. It's intimate, illuminating, and revealing, which might surprise readers given that so much of Sophie's life has been lived publicly on the internet. The book details Sophie's catapult into the public eye and the identity crisis she was grappling with behind the shiny, happily married wife and mum of two kids image. It unpacks how Sophie lost and then found herself again in motherhood and how she navigated her sexuality and fell in love all over again. My name is Jamila Rizvi and here is my conversation with Sophie Keisha for The Weekend Briefing. Sophie, Keisha, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. It's so lovely to have you. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I have been doing a deep dive on you over the last week or so. And, but look, deep dive slash a little bit of stalking. Um, <laughs> listening and reading to all sorts of things about you as well as devouring your book. And one of the themes that kind of came through to me that was sort of there consistently in a lot of what you said is that you were a kid who really wanted to grow up. Mm -hmm. Like you were someone who wanted to be a grown up fast. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And upon reflection, which I've clearly done so much throughout writing the book, and then I've even found greater reflection after the book, is that being the youngest of four girls in a very busy household, maybe I did want to grow up and sort of establish myself or prove myself in you know, I, I never wanted to come across in a book like neglected, but just, you know, I'm a mum now, I get it, it's busy. And so sort of as you go down the food chain, it was just like, come on, Soph, let's go, let's go. So I think I was always doing things from a young age to sort of establish myself and say, hey, like I'm here and I'm, I'm, I can do cool things as well. So, and certainly, yes, in terms of having babies young and um, getting married young, I didn't think it at the time, but I do. I look back now and go, wow, that was so much society pressure as a woman to prove that I'm worthy by doing these things. Like I can be a mum. I've got a man that wants to marry me. And so I've made it in life. And I'm so frustrated at myself for once having that belief. Yeah, right. I, I do think that sense of being in a hurry comes through beautifully in your book. You describe it so well. Tell me about becoming a mum so young because one of the things, I mean, firstly, you're young, right? You're diving in and I think you've probably got some confidence when you're young that you don't have when you're older, yeah. you get more self-doubt. But you wouldn't have had the same camaraderie, I imagine. You wouldn't have had heaps of friends with lots of little kids already. Yeah. So it was really exciting when I became pregnant. You know, I was the first in my friendship groups. Um, having three older sisters, there were babies everywhere. Yeah. So it was so beautiful to have that family connection. And I'm super close with my sisters and all of my nieces and nephews. So that's nice. But yeah, I did find um, a shift probably. I actually recall one time, Bobby would have been about six months old and my friends were trying to organize a birthday dinner for me on a Tuesday night in the city. And it was just things like that where I was like, we are just in totally different worlds now because that, you know, I've got a six-month-old baby and I am not going anywhere near the city, let alone on a weeknight. 
you know, I can say that I was aware of it, but as we know with motherhood, anything is still a shock to the system. And so I did, I did have to sort of branch out and find new circles and, and over the years. And as the book shows, let go of a lot of people that had been in my life for a long time. And, and I think one thing I've learned from that is that it's, that's fine. That's okay. I have a lot of friends now, some of my best friends who I have drifted from just naturally. And that's life. There is no hatred. There's no anger living publicly on social media. Everyone's like, Oh, what happened? What was the fallout? And I'm like, it's really not that exciting other than as adults and mums, we've just gone separate ways. So it was a lot to take on young, but the person I am, I just wanted to prove everyone wrong. And I wanted to prove I can do it. It doesn't matter. I'm 23. I'm super independent and I've got this. Was that search for a sort of camaraderie and community part of the reason you started The Young Mummy? Was that, was it a search for people like you? Look, I have to be honest, not intentionally. Yeah. Initially, no, it was simply an outlet for me because I'd always been doing something in the writing media. I was an avid journalist in the making. I wanted to do every inch of work experience I can from a young age. And I was always volunteering my time and following, shadowing people around. And so when I did get pregnant and I was really sick and sort of everything had to stop for a while, I was lost there. And I thought, how can I use this creative outlet that I have to suit my life now? So not intentionally did I go out to seek that because like mummy blogging and sort of Instagram profiles, they didn't exist then. But what I quickly found, and I think that's what I loved about it, was that I found this community and it didn't matter if I was 23 and someone was 38. We had so much in common together. There was some mental health stuff that hit you pretty hard after having kids. Mm -hmm. And I understand it's kind of from your book that it's kind of kept going in some ways. There's been a presence of anxiety Mm -hmm. and depression through your life. Yep. Can you tell me what that felt like early on? Like, did you realise what was happening at the time? Well, the answer is no, because every piece of education and information I'd been given about postnatal depression was instantaneous after having your child. Right. Right. And so anything I'd learn, I'd see pictures with, you know, postnatal depression flyers, and it's a woman holding this newborn baby. And whilst, you know, it was hard, it was difficult. It was for the first six months, I sort of, I embraced it all and, and I was okay. And so when postnatal depression hit me after that six month period, it did take me a while to realize what it was because I didn't know that you could get it Mm, later. mm. I didn't know that you could face these things later. When my doctor said to me, I'm diagnosing you with postnatal depression, I was like, what do you mean? I don't have a newborn. Mm. So there was that misrepresentation of that diagnosis, I think, at the time, and I, I can't comment on if that exists now, but I hope that there is more education that these things as mums can can come in ebbs and flows and hit us at various times. But there was certainly a point there where I didn't identify it and I genuinely just thought I was going crazy. Yeah. You know, I was sleeping. I had a baby that slept. I was having 12 hours sleep. I was eating. I was playing netball. I was doing everything that I normally did. And all of a sudden I'm curled up in balls, having panic attacks. And I'm scared of going out in public. I was, had developed this insane fear of flying, mm. driving my car over freeways. I would start imagining that the, the bridge is going to collapse and I'm going to kill my baby. And so these intensely intrusive thoughts would just come into me. And I didn't, I didn't know what it was. So it did, it really shocked me because like I said, I was of the belief that postnatal depression happens straight away 
um, when you're in the hospital and not after you've been living a pretty happy life for six months. What did finding help look like for you? Yeah. So I think just getting that diagnosis, it's like, oh, everything makes sense now. And so I was, you know, as we all do, just telling myself, you're being silly, like you're being stupid. You've got a lovely partner, boyfriend at the time, who's a great dad. You've got support. You know, I had the, what are you complaining about mindset? Like what, why are you acting like this? There's nothing wrong. And I think that that is the main reason why people who suffer mental health don't go seek help. But it wasn't until my mum actually took me to my doctor because I had a few thyroid issues and I kept complaining to her that my thyroid was choking me. I said, mum, I think I've got a brain tumour because my head always hurts. And it was actually my mum who identified that she saw something else was going on because Mm. I was continually diagnosing myself with all these things that were going to kill me. Mm. And so my mum said, I'm taking you to the doctor And I remember the frustration I had at my mum when she said to my doctor, I think she's got postnatal depression. I think these are signs of anxiety. And I remember sitting there going, mum, it's not like, don't tell me what it is. This is not anxiety. I've actually got something wrong with me. Jared would take me to the hospital in the middle of the night and I'd make them scan my brain. I'd make them scan everything inside me because I was convinced that I was going to die. And it was purely anxiety and the pressures of motherhood facing me that I now had something that I loved more than anything that I couldn't fathom something happening to me and that worry. And I remember in the doctors, I said to mum, when will this worry go away? And she said, never, you just get more used to it. And so from that moment on, when I realized that my mum knew what was happening to me, my doctor said, you are healthy, but right now your brain is just not being your best friend. I went, Okay. So I had to let go of all these um, misconceptions that I had and I had to listen and go, right. And I know that once I had that diagnosis, it was just this weight off my shoulders Mm. of, okay, I don't need to be feeling like this. And this actually isn't normal. And I think, you know, when you're talking about that, that choking sensation, for example, when, when you feel like there is something stuck in your throat, when you feel like you are choking, it's really hard to accept that your brain might be telling you that that's the case rather than it actually being true. Yeah, It's incredibly hard to accept that my brain is creating this sensation as opposed mm-hmm. to there is something wrong. Yeah. And so, like I said, that frustration, I'll never forget. I had at my mum when she said anxiety, I was like, don't tell me what I'm feeling. Like, don't you have no idea? I'm actually sick. I'm actually dying. But that realization, and I did, I just had to let go and listen. You do, you need to listen to the professionals listen to my mom. She'd had four children. She'd seen it all. It was such a beautiful relief. And from then my postnatal depression journey was quite a quick turnaround to feeling like myself again. Once I accepted it, was seeking treatment. I went on medication for a bit and it was just so nice to feel calm again. I think a lot of us in the world look to people like you who've amassed a really extraordinary social media following we sort of see those lives as perfect. Even with someone like you who is so honest mm-hmm. and raw about your experiences, yeah. there's this sense of, oh, well, you've got it all because there's a million people who are interested in what you ate for breakfast. It must be okay in, yeah. your, in your world. But the reality is all of those people watching you, and I'm saying that in inverted commas, but it is a bit like that, comes with its own pressure. Did you, mm-hmm. did you also feel anxiety as that following started to grow and get bigger and more attentive to what was going on in your world? 
Yeah, there's been times during sort of the past decade where I really have questioned, like, Mm. what am I doing? Because at times the negativity can be so loud and it really can make you question yourself as a person. But then opposite to that, that actually goes against everything I am as a person. And I'm not here to prove myself to anybody. I am not here. And and that's often the misconception from trolls or negative people online who follow you that you're doing everything to get ticks of approval and you're doing this. And you know what? I reckon there are some people out there on social media who do that. But I know within myself, I'm here to be me. And if I can help people along the way, then great. But at the same time, I'm also not here to help people. Like I'm not here to be your doctor. I'm not here to be your role model. I'm here to be Sophie. And if you want to come along for the journey, then that's fine. And I remember someone said this um, quote to me, they're like, in regards to followers, it's like you're driving the car. You're not inviting them to sit in the front seat and give you directions. You're inviting them to jump in the back. And if they want to come along for the journey, they can. As much as people say, like you said, or they want to tune in and watch my breakfast, they actually help me in times I communicate with them just as much as I help them. Mm. And at the end of the day, I am a 31-year-old mum of two, being separated, being divorced, turned gay. Like <laughs> I've been through a lot and I'm here to learn from your experiences just as much as you are here to learn from mine. So there certainly are pressures, but I believe when you're in this space, you can choose what you give your energy and where you turn your eyes to. And I'll always see the good in it. Yeah. You just mentioned uh, becoming separated and then getting divorced. One of the things, as one of those many followers, I have been, I don't know, I've so admired has been watching you and Jared create this co-parenting relationship mm-hmm. and, and working out how to make that work. And yep. it looks like you're pretty damn good at it. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about what that process has been like and yep. what has helped it to be effective? Yeah. And I want to first off by saying, because I feel like sometimes this gets lost in the messaging that it hasn't been as easy yeah. as what people think it is. It's actually been gut-wrenchingly hard because when you do love someone so much and you do care about each other, not in a romantic way, just as humans, it's been really difficult. So I need to clarify that. But um, No, fair enough. Something that you know, worked in Jared in my favor is from early conversations of separation, we have always been completely honest and transparent with each other. So nothing has ever been hidden. If someone felt something, they expressed it. And that's credit to Jared and myself for having the maturity and the ability to communicate so openly. I think it really does come down to the people. You know, there's no point headbutting a brick wall and, and trying to get your point across to someone who doesn't want to listen. So we have been and we still are in terms of co-parenting our children so open to just discussion, not taking anything personally, you know, working together for a resolution. I often talk about in disagreements, I often say, are you arguing just to disagree or are you arguing to find a resolution? Because that's what I'm always aiming to do. There's no point arguing if you're not trying to solve something. I'm glad you and I don't do any arguing because I'm often arguing just to disagree. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and that's fine. I know a lot of people that do I'm that. A terrible person. Person. And I was, I was absolutely that person in my previous life. Now I just, I don't have the energy. I don't, you know what? I don't have the care to do it. Yeah. Unless we want to work together to achieve something here, I'm not going to do it. And, and Jared's very much like that too. And again, that is not to say we do not butt heads. We don't disagree. We haven't had massive fights where someone stormed out in the past. 
we have, but we're always open to listening and communicating. And, and only recently we sat down again last week to have a serious discussion about new dynamics and children's priorities and schools and basketball training and, and all this stuff. And, and we just, yeah, we really just try to work together to keep it amicable and peaceful. Tell me what it was like the first time you met Maddie. First time I met Maddie. So I'm very much what I've learned. I had a very stereotypical male that I liked and was attracted to and dated. They all looked mm. the same. But then when I started dating women, I, I've dated all forms of, of humans. Um, some identify as women, some do not. I've had sexual experiences with a variety of them. <laughs> but it's just funny that like the two or three public relationships I've had have all been sporting athletes with blonde hair. So everyone's like, oh, you've got a type <laughs> with women. I'm like, trust me, I don't. I just don't tell you everyone who I've had sex with as well. Um, but when I met Mads, I was just with friends at a basketball game and I saw her on the court and I couldn't tell you who else was playing. I couldn't tell you anything. I just saw her straight away and I was just like, she's beautiful. And on paper, in terms of physically, she was just like my dream, like six foot tall. She's stunning. She's she's really good at basketball. I'm into fitness. I'm into sport. So I loved it. But it wasn't until I met her that I was like, wow, you really are my dream woman because she is so funny. Like she's a country girl from Shepparton. So, you know, I give her shit at times. She can have this real bogan accent sometimes. Like she makes terrible dad jokes. And so she was just so on my level straight away. And although when we first met, it was a really difficult time for me because I was sort of in and out of another relationship and we we did date for a bit and come apart for six months and sort of reconnect. But I do remember the first night I asked her for a phone number like three times and she didn't give it to me. And then she finally gave it to me. And I knew that we were going to connect because we texted until 3am that morning, just about life, just all about life and about previous relationships, about goals, about funny banter. How did you manage the introduction of Maddie to your gorgeous kids? You know what? It was pretty easy. And that's because I had actually had another partner prior for about nine months and and she was a female. But I think transitioning my children to female relationships I can admit was probably easier than another man coming in. Yeah. I always have my friends over. I've played footy, so I'd often have all the footy girls around and cook dinner and and I have a very solid, very loyal bunch of girlfriends who love my kids. So to have women coming in and out of the house and around the kids wasn't anything new. And again, I go back to how Jared and I treat our relationship now. I've always been like that with my children. So Floss was probably a bit young. She she wouldn't have understood, but I said to Bobby, you know, like mummy loves this person or mummy, mummy's going to go on a date with this person. And we've just raised our children not to see relationships as, you know, one gender versus another. We've always, before I realized my sexuality, we've always been really fluid with that. So it just wasn't a shock. It actually made it quite seamless to that. But yeah, they fell in love with Mad straight away. She really is a big kid. One part of her is like the hard ass, but then the other part of her is like the fun mum as well, whether I just sort of float in the middle. <laughs> yeah, my favourite is when I just see those three just being absolute dickheads together, just funny faces, silly dances. It's kind of like them having another mum but also like a big sister as well. 
And something that's so beautiful now is Bobby, my son, he's a really deep thinker and he just, he's an old man in an eight-year-old's body and sometimes he'll say, Mum, I just want to talk to Maddie in private. And there's just some things that he's safe to talk to her about. It's so beautiful to watch. A lot of the Australian public would have seen you most recently on Australian Survivor, Blood versus Water. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I if I could go on a reality show, it would be Survivor, except I wouldn't survive. So I could never go on it. Yeah. You <laughs> I didn't either, so yeah. it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you clearly found a way to do it though. You found the guts to go on, which is just huge, mate. Can you yeah. tell us? about making the decision and then how the decision and expectations stacked up against the reality? Yeah, so I, I was like you, genuinely petrified. You know, my worst nightmare on so many counts. Reality TV show is something I've never been interested in doing. Being away from my children was obviously the yeah. biggest impact. So it wasn't a matter of oh, I've got to go to Sydney for a work trip. This was I could possibly be gone for nearly 50 days with no communication with you. You know, I've got two kids that suffer asthma. I like to be there to, if they need to go to hospital. Like there's just so many things that came into play. But it was just a really good time. So I had been in talks with them a year or two before that to do it. And I wasn't taking it seriously because I just had told myself this is not going to happen. You know, I'll go through the process, but no way am I doing it. I can't remember if it was COVID or if I just didn't get through that season. I can't remember. It didn't end up happening and I was so relieved. I was just like, oh, my God, thank God. And so then when the opportunity came back and it went quite quickly, I was like, oh, my God, is this actually happening? I couldn't fathom actually doing it. I was happy to sort of go through the process and find some things out, but actually going on Survivor was never going to happen. And then before you know it, I was, this is it. I'm doing photo shoots. I'm doing this. And I truly don't think until I was probably in Queensland in hotel quarantine, did it sink in like, wow, I'm going to be on Survivor. Or even on day one, when Jonathan handed me my buff, And just for context, like Survivor has been my favourite show to watch my whole life. And so I have loved it so much, but it's petrified me as well. But when I got handed my buff on the mat, I thought, holy crap, I'm in Survivor. Like this is, I am living at a childhood dream, but also one that I couldn't have ever imagined doing. But it was a really good challenge for me. And I never went on there. I thought I'd last a day, to be honest. I either thought I'd quit or I'd tell someone to f*** off and they'd kick me out on day one. For me, it was like get through the first week. It was never get to the end and win the money. It was like just don't be voted out first. It was nothing about reality TV shows, nothing about winning money. It was nothing about that. It was just purely a female taking a chance on herself and just doing something that scared the absolute hell out of her. And it did, petrified me. But what I really found as soon as I got there because I do, I suffer really bad anxiety. And I pictured trying to sleep in the middle of the night, in the middle of a bush, having a panic attack. But once I got there and I realized that to let go of that pressure of, okay, I can't bring my kids. So I just have to believe that they're fine was so empowering. And it was just so beautiful. Everyone's like, did you miss your phone? I'm like, no, I loved just when you are forced to just sit there in your rawest form and have conversations with people and not worry about anything else is actually really beautiful. So I think I was there 18 days or something. You can break it up. Game side, 
horrific. It was hell. Oh my God, I couldn't <laughs> cope. I said it to Jonathan, I think when, when I knew I was getting voted out or I was knew I was close to, I said to him, mate, I am happy to put my hand up and say I will be the worst survivor player in history because all these things I thought I could do, I thought I could lie, I thought I could cheat, I thought I could be mischievous. I got there and I'm like, I can't do that. Like this is not the game for me. I'm happy to just watch it because I can't do that. And so I said, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to say I suck at this game. I'm happy with that. I've challenged myself. I've come out here. I've lived on rice. You know, I didn't eat for three days. I slept on the sand. I had snakes and frogs climb all over me. And I, I had fun. I had fun. So a lot of people see reality show like, oh, you go on there to win. I didn't go on there to do anything other than challenge myself. And I did that. I've done it. I've ticked it off and I can happily say I'll never do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's done. It's finished. Something that comes through so strongly in your book is this idea of being scared and doing it anyway and Mm -hmm. kind of conquering your own fear of not knowing or not knowing the outcome or not having certainty, you know, talk about um, having, getting married and starting a family really young when you didn't necessarily Mm -hmm. have a a friendship model that was already doing that. And then conquering postnatal depression, starting what eventually becomes this huge public account with this following without a roadmap of how to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then exploring, almost having first sexual encounters again. Yeah. Once you're well into adulthood, this is a big question, but what have you learned about taking risks? I think for me, the main reason I believe that people don't take risks is because they're scared of failure. And I can't remember, and if you're listening, I'm sorry for not crediting you, but someone said to me, would you do something that scared you in a room full of people and then but what if you knew that no one would know the outcome yeah you'd do it wouldn't you and so for me I believe that yeah everyone is scared of failure because we're still all so caught up on what other people think and we're still so focused on embarrassing ourselves and and failing publicly and oh you're a loser but it's like I had the courage to try it and so with me I left a marriage not having any idea of what was to come. And it did, it scared the living hell out of me, but I was okay with that. I was okay that if we took a break and I realized, oh no, I miss him. I want to go back. I was okay with that. I was okay with changing my mind. I was okay with starting to date women and then realizing, oh, this isn't for me. I'm definitely straight and going back. I was fine with that. It's because I removed all that outside noise. I say it in the book, we are so scared of the unknown, but the unknown can actually be so exciting, but it can be exciting for two reasons, because you might get something so beautiful out of it. And for me, that ended up being fast forward a few years, my beautiful fiance, Maddie, or you're going to get experience and life out of it. And you're going to realize that you can change your mind. You can evolve. You can go back and forth. You have every right to do that. And so again, people are scared of the unknown, but they're also scared to change their mind because it makes people go, oh, you know, I've been told I'm erratic because I changed my mind. Where the change of mind shows that you're learning, change of mind shows that you are willing to take on feedback, you're willing to take criticism, or you're willing to learn things that you once previously had an idea about and you went, well, I don't actually believe that anymore. I think I'm going with this one stop being so scared of the unknown when either way, like I look at failure as actually a positive because you've learned something from it. 
So is it actually really failure when you're learning? Sophie, thank you so much for that articulation, particularly that idea that so much of our fear of failure is actually a fear of public failure. It's a fear of yep. what others are going to say, what others are going to think. Um, I'm going to be thinking about that for the rest of the afternoon. Yeah. Thank you for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for my conversation with the wonderful Sophie Keisha. You can, of course, find her online on Instagram in particular, and you can get a copy of her new debut book, Then There Was Her, at all the good bookstores and probably the bad ones as well. There is no weekend list for you this weekend, everyone. I'm so sorry. And that's because, as you can probably hear, my voice has given out completely. I've been quite unwell. So thanks for bearing with us. And our producer, Bron, who usually joins me for the weekend list, is away in Europe where she has just gotten engaged. An enormous congratulations to her. That's it for this weekend briefing, everyone. Please make sure you download the listener app where you can follow the briefing and make sure you never miss an episode or you can follow us wherever you listen to this podcast. While you're there, why not leave us a rating or a review? It will help other people to find the briefing. We'll be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.